You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. From restaurants to gyms and even your own office, fear of the coronavirus is disrupting daily routines. Schools shut down by coronavirus might not reopen until fall. Six and a half million Americans have filed for unemployment benefits in the last week. More than 61,000 people. Nearly 80,000 people. Coronavirus deaths in the country passed that 100,000 mark. Funeral homes have been struggling to cope. The coronavirus pandemic completely overturned all of our lives. And as it swept across the globe, people started to wonder where it came from. I mean, the, the wet markets. Yeah, a situation with wet markets. The wet markets, where wild animals are sold alongside meat and seafood, massively increase the odds of a virus jumping from one species to another. Once people pinned down live animal markets in China as a potential source, they started talking about ways to prevent future pandemics. Global pressure is rising on China to shut down those so-called wet markets. I want China to stop this. U.S. lawmakers are not only putting pressure on China, but also urging the World Health Organization to implement a global ban of the markets. But as all this was happening, we here at Future Perfect started talking to researchers. And those researchers said, sure, foreign wet markets could be a source of the next pandemic, but they're not the only problem. Uh, you know, uh, let me let me think exactly how to put this. This is Martha Nelson. She studies viruses for the National Institutes of Health. I think it's really easy to think that pandemics come from other places. I think it's really easy to think that they're foreign invaders coming from other people who are doing things in a bad way. And I certainly would never underplay the importance of wet markets and all the opportunities for novel pathogens to emerge there. But I think it's sometimes hard to see things in your own backyard. From the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Future Perfect. I'm Sigal Samuel. This season, we're looking at how the meat we eat affects us all. Today, the pandemic risk in our own backyard. How the system of raising meat developed in the US could make the world sick again. Last episode, we talked about this system and how it could lead to untreatable bacterial infections. But this episode, our producer, Bird Pinkerton, explains the risk of a viral pandemic brewing in America's factory farms. Martha Nelson started paying close attention to pig viruses around 2009, when the H1N1 swine flu hit. She started going to conferences for flus that people were paying less attention to. Focused on pigs and dogs and seals and bats and horses. Kind of the misfits of the influenza community. She was meeting people from all over the world and talking about misfit influenzas and striking up collaborations. And at first, she was doing this in order to find the source of the 2009 swine flu. But the more she learned the more she realized... 
it's not about pinpointing an individual farm as being responsible for the emergence of a pandemic virus. It's really about understanding the entire system of swine production. Martha was putting together this picture of the big global network of pigs and all of the many, many steps that go into raising them. And once she understood that system, she realized something. Basically, every step of the way that we raise pigs ratchets up the risk of a pandemic. And there are flu risks in cattle and chicken as well, but since Martha's research is pig-focused, we're going to look at three big pig risks today. First, the way that the American system helps viruses travel and mix. Something that Martha calls swineways. Who named it a swineway? <laughs> so that actually, I think my, my friend Marie Culhane in Minnesota... Martha and Marie use this term to describe the paths that huge numbers of pigs take every year crisscrossing the country. So we'll breed pigs in places like North Carolina, but it's often cheaper to raise those pigs in the Midwest because the grain is there. And then at another age, they might be moved again. And as they're moved along these swineways, the pigs mix and mingle. And that really helps viruses in one place quickly spread to other parts of the country and become embedded in the pig populations there. Viruses also love it when pigs fly. Yeah. <laughs> Quick backstory. Years ago, the U.S. and Europe started breeding these sows that could have lots and lots of babies. High-efficiency sows. And as the U.S. model of raising meat spread all around the world, other countries wanted high-efficiency sows too. They realized that rather than breeding their own sows to be high efficiency, they could just put a couple hundred of the U.S. prize sows on a Boeing and send them over to China or Thailand or Vietnam. And suddenly that was a really quick and easy way to increase swine production in these countries. And as pigs fly, viruses fly right along with them. So we've got viruses speeding along swineways. We've got viruses flying overseas. Fortunately, usually, those viruses aren't a big deal. Some of them can't make the jump to humans. Some of them can, but don't make us very sick. So at this point, all these viruses are like risky ingredients, but they're not yet mixed together into a pandemic stew. Until we get to risk number two, factory farms. Picture five to 10,000 pigs all gathered in one place. They are very close together, they're often pretty close to their own feces, too. So once viruses get inside, factory farms are like the perfect breeding ground for a super virus. And to fully understand why, let's check in on just the basic science of how viruses work. So one of the critical features of the influenza virus genome is that it's composed of these eight different segments. These eight segments are almost like chromosomes because they're full of genetic information. And when viruses mix, they can swap segments. So it's almost like they're swapping entire chromosomes. And this can lead to sort of these chimeric viruses that have mixes of segments from two different parents. I love the idea of the chimera. So you, you get into the body of the pig, like a lion influenza virus and like an eagle influenza virus. Yes. And a snake influenza virus, and what comes out is like a lion head. Exactly. <laughs> Something from Greek mythology. 
Making chimeras is totally normal virus behavior. But usually when viruses are experimenting and doing their thing, they make a bunch of dud viruses. Yes, this would be a lion on a snake body with flamingo feet. In the wild, life is dangerous and difficult. So our little flamingo-footed virus would fall flat on his face, and that would be the end of it. But the thing about when you raise animals where there's lots of opportunities for transmission, and they're in very close contact, and they're sharing lots of, of pathogens, basically you're lowering the bar for what this pathogen needs to have in terms of fitness in order to transmit. Which means our flamingo-footed virus survives longer, and he has a higher chance to swap bits of genetic information with other viruses. Maybe he swaps his clumsy flamingo feet for speedy gazelle legs. And so it, it may become a version of itself that then can actually, you know, really succeed in the swine population. So, this is the second risk. After all the viruses make their way to a factory farm, the conditions there are pretty ideal for brewing up a monster virus. And if a chimeric monster like this develops, our system is also set up to spread that monster virus out into the population again. This is systemic risk number three. And Martha thinks about it a lot. She's figured out a couple of scenarios that would let a monster virus make its way out of factory farms. One is on the farms themselves, where the monster might jump back into human workers. But she's also looked at how it could spread at county fairs. Yeah, I've, I, the fairs are, are my favorite. Every year, around 150 million people go to county fairs all across the United States. And they're all! So there'll be a big carnival part, there'll be a, you know, rides, amusement, there'll be a food part, there'll be eating contests and log rolling contests. One, bacon. Whatever you can imagine will be at the fair. And maybe you didn't imagine this, but that also includes kids and teens showing off their pigs. That is the one that has the most show hog look about her. So there is a show, and it's almost like a beauty contest for the pigs. Get on top of her. She's the one that has the most volume and expression of muscle. They are being judged on their musculature. I really appreciate that. Get right behind her if you want to get nitpicky on her. Different parts of their anatomy. I am not a pig judge, so I do not know exactly what they're looking for. Scott, just like to see that thing balance up a little bit with a little bit more of a show hog look. Round out the class with the blue hog. Every year, some of these prize pigs get viruses at the fair. Martha's not quite sure how yet, but viruses from factory-farmed pigs make the jump. And you're also going to see kids who, these pigs are what a puppy might be. Like, these are their best friends. They are going to be lying in the pen with the pigs. They're going to be reading a book in the pen with the pig. There's, there's just a lot of opportunity for pathogens to spread between pigs and the kids who are showing them. Every summer, Martha has documented cases of kids getting novel flus. Some years, it's as low as 10 kids, but one year it was over 300. The more times that something like that happens, we increase the chances that it will gain a foothold in the human population. So far, these flus haven't been bad. But if a chimeric monster virus came together, 
we could potentially see a repeat of 2020, except with an influenza virus instead of a coronavirus. We might see people dying and things shutting down. You know, and it's hard to predict severity. It's thought that it would be mostly a problem in children, but it's hard to predict exactly how severe the pandemic would be. Is there a world in which we could have a pretty severe potential pandemic? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, influenza is a pathogen that as soon as you think you understand it, it will do something totally new. And we certainly can see that the frequency of pig-to-human transmission is plain Russian roulette. I look at it as every year that we have cases, we increase the probability that a pandemic will occur. Well, that's good. (laughs) But don't panic. There are actually potential fixes here. And one comes from a researcher with a pretty cool, weird plan. There's a guy in Kansas, Jorgen Richt, who's working on pigs. I know Jorgen. Of course, I know Jorgen. (laughs) After the break, Jorgen Richt, a potential fix and a herd of very special cows. There are a million bad ways to start your morning off. The no coffee traffic jam, the soggy morning jog, the why is the dog taking so long, just go already walk. But you can unleash your ideal day with a perfect shower using Method Hair Care products. Designed with high-quality ingredients, Method's new range of shampoos and conditioners will give your hair undeniable softness and shine. And hey, if you're a night shower kind of person, that's great too. Try pure peace infused with peony, rose water, and quinoa protein. Or simply nourish, crafted with coconut, rice milk, and shea butter. Or daily zen, made with cucumber, seaweed, and green tea. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Shop methodproducts.com. Welcome back. To figure out what we could do about pandemic risks on factory farms, I talked to a guy named Jürgen Richt. His workplace is unusual. You know, I have a 600 square feed room and I can put camels, horses, you name it in there. Have you ever put a camel in there? I work with camels, but I have not done it here. Yes, I do work with camels. The most dangerous animals I work with, except tigers. Jürgen does all this dangerous work as a veterinary researcher. He does field work and collaborations all around the world. His office is full of souvenirs, like boomerangs and figures of pangolins. Pangolins, not penguins, pangolins. But when he's not traveling, He spends most of his time at one of the top spots for veterinary research in the country. And I am now at Kansas State Veterinary University for 11 years as the region's distinguished professor at Kansas State. In his collaborations with colleagues from around the world, Jurgen has done some really innovative work to protect people from disease outbreaks. For example, back when everyone was losing their minds over mad cow disease, Jorgen helped create a mad cow-resistant cow. He used a gene editing technique that was brand new in the 1990s. That's how Dolly was made. You remember Dolly in Scotland? This technology we used to make gene-edited cows. 
That is Dolly the cloned sheep. And Jürgen's cows did not have cute names, but he used the same science to edit their cells. And by doing so, Jürgen and his colleagues successfully created a mad cow-resistant herd. It's still thriving. I, I know where they live. They live in a beautiful area overlooking. Uh, it's actually a very beautiful farm they're living on. And they are used to produce fetal calf syrup and other products for manufacturing of human vaccines, etc. So Jürgen learned it was possible to genetically modify animals to resist diseases. But he also learned that that late 90s technique was very difficult and very expensive. And then, a few years ago, people started talking about a new tool for editing genes, CRISPR. I said, oh my golly, this is the next big thing. I immediately got nervous when I was excited. He was excited because he thought he and his colleagues could use CRISPR to do something similar to what they'd done with cows, only much more easily. And I said, now it's time again to approach a critical problem for the swine industry in this case, and for public health using 21st century technology to solve 21st century problems. And what is the 21st century problem in this? Pigs are susceptible to swine influenza viruses. Each swine influenza virus infection in pigs costs the industry between three to five dollar a pig. So it's an economic problem for pigs. Secondly, swine influenza virus have the ability, under certain circumstances, to jump into humans and cause disease. So Jürgen thought, all right, swine flu is bad for profits and for people? Well... We can think about making pigs which are resistant to swine influenza viruses. This is the potential solution I promised before the break. Jorgen has been collaborating with researchers and labs from all across the United States to make it happen. And he realized that to make a flu-resistant pig, they were going to have to knock out two genes, starting with one, then tackling the other. The work is weird. In this case, you just go to a slaughterhouse, collect uterus, uteri. Uteri in hand, you take the eggs, you fertilize them and do some gene editing, and then you wait. How many days are pigs pregnant? Oh, I don't know. I'm assuming you know. Yes, I do. I'm a veterinarian. I ask you. They carry for three months, three weeks, and three days. The first time around, things did not go according to plan. One miscarried. The next one got very sick. I forgot was lame or whatever. We put it down. So we had, we more or less lost a year. But they're trying again. And Jorgen is hoping that after three months, three weeks, and three days, he'll have pigs with one of the necessary genes knocked out. And then we have to knock out the second gene on top of the first. If everything goes according to plan and they don't have too many lame pigs, we could eventually have pigs resistant to flu viruses. And theoretically, with no viruses, there'd be no virus mixing on factory farms and no chimera formation and no development of novel killer strains. Now, before we get too excited, this is not the be-all and end-all of pandemic prevention. You, you cannot have only one approach. You don't put all eggs in one basket. Jürgen's approach would only help with pigs, for example. And the risk of a virus developing is also a big problem with chickens. 
So this is one approach in many, and it should not be the only one. It sounds, you know, it, it certainly is really intriguing. That's Martha Nelson again. She's definitely interested in Jurgen's idea of genetically modifying pigs, and she agrees that we need to pursue a lot of options. For example, Martha is looking into the work other researchers have done to develop a universal flu vaccine for animals. And for her part, she's exploring solutions that would require changes to the system itself. Like, take her favorite, the hog shows at the county fair. We've learned you cannot change many things about a show. But, you know, one of the things we've thought about is what if you just changed the timing of shows a little bit? Moved some shows up or back a week? And what if... You know, say there was one big national show that recruited pigs from all over the country and was really important in the spread of the virus. And what if you just had two weeks where you didn't have any shows after that? To me, though, that seemed like a really small change right at the end of the line. Instead of eliminating the swineways or canceling the flights of pigs or changing the conditions on factory farms that make it so easy for viruses to mix. So I ended up asking Martha, were her suggested tweaks too small? I focus on small tweaks because the, I mean, someday I will work with an agricultural economist who can help me figure out what would be economically viable in terms of larger tweaks. Right now, I can come up with all kinds of things, but I would imagine that most of them, people would just shoot down as completely unrealistic. I get that impulse, but at the same time, you can reschedule or even cancel a county fair. We just did because of the pandemic we're in right now. We've been forced to shut down almost everything and live bunkered down and isolated for months and months on end. And it's cost us a lot of money and, more importantly, a lot of lives. So I wonder about this idea that it's not economically viable to change the current system of raising pigs or the systems for raising chicken and beef. I wonder if it's economically viable to continue to support systems that could lead to another pandemic. Really good way to go ahead and start off the Market Hog Show today. And first off, uh, I guess... Bird Pinkerton reported and produced this episode, and it was edited by Amy Drostowska. Both are hogs that have muscle and have wit. Jillian Weinberger Sr. produces this show, and Jared Paul mixes it. Uh, That gilt's better up through her front one-third. She ties her neck higher at the top side of her shoulder. She's a cleaner-headed gilt. Our hosts are Dylan Matthews and me, Seagal Samuel. Nothing taken away from the young man's Berkshire gilt that ends up in second. I like a lot of things about this gilt. Liliana Michelena fact-checked this episode, and Liz Nelson is the executive producer for Vox Podcasts. Big, bold, robust kind of a hog. It's a really good pick. Viveka Morris from the Yale Law, Ethics, and Animals program advised us on this episode. We also had help from Sonia Shaw and her excellent book, Pandemic. We'll link to that and to one of my articles in the show notes. A really good hog to go ahead and be in fifth. Music in this episode is from APM, Chris Zabriskie, Little Glass Men, and Jared Paul. Then the hogs that come out six or seven, eight, and nine are all good design, practical kind of market hogs. We're grateful to Lauren Katz for her social media work and to Kate Daly for all her help. 
Congratulations to those exhibitors as they head back to the park. This podcast is made possible thanks to support from animal charity evaluators. They research and promote the most effective ways to help animals. Results from class one in ninth place. 